0: Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things.
1: For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Awesome. Our reading for today is Mark uh, 8, 27 through 38. So, go ahead. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, What do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke his word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. When he had called the people to himself, when his disciples also with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the, and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will, it, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be
0: to God. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, we come to you again, and we just thank you now for this moment on this Father's Day to hear from our dad, for you to speak to us. And we thank you for the Gospel of Mark. Well, this this incredible book, this biography that we've been studying, each week it's giving us a deeper look into who you are, Jesus. And so we come to you now, and we want to just collectively leave our assumptions um, right here at the door, and we want to come to you with wondrous, open, um, longing eyes, God, that, that are here to see you in a fresh way. So we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would now, as we are going to study your word in depth here, as I'm going to preach, we just invite you to minister to us, to speak to us, to um, surprise us, God. Give us something new. And and God, ultimately, our prayers that you would meet us here, that you would speak to us in the individual, special ways that you do when we gather here in your name, around your word. So we love you. We pray you'd bless our time um, in your word now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, you may be seated. Uh, Wait, oh, sorry. Um, JK, happy Father's Day. You didn't have to stand up, but uh, hey, um, as Kyle kind of gave a a little uh, intro there, we've been studying the Gospel of Mark here for the past, I guess it's been about four months now since February, March, April, May, well, almost five months, uh, which is wild. Probably the longest. I think this is officially the longest we've ever spent in a book of the Bible, which is an okay thing uh, to take our time. I'm not getting bored of Jesus. Anybody else? I think we're okay, right? Like, There's there's always more of Jesus to see. In fact, the more of Jesus you see, the more of Jesus you want to see, and the more you want to know. And you realize there's really no end to our understanding of how great he is, how awesome he is. Yet there is understanding, which is really helpful. That's what Mark is showing us. What is Jesus really like? What's the way in which he really lived? Um, And like I prayed, let's not assume those things. Let's receive those things in a fresh way from God's word. So uh, as it's As that theme says, our series is appropriately named The Way. We're learning from the life of Jesus here in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, And each week, as we study a different section, Alex just read our verses here at the end of Mark 8, we are focusing on a different aspect of Jesus' life, the way in which he did different things. And I thought by now I'd run out of verbs, but... We're we're only halfway through, and we got I got plenty more to come, uh, and so I'm excited uh, this morning to to look back at this, and I want to preach this morning from the idea of the way Jesus clarified. That's our kind of big idea here in this chapter, the way Jesus clarified. Um, Next week we will be in Mark 9 uh, and excited to have Pastor Jim Gallagher from Calvary Vero Beach is going to come teach here uh, and excited for him to bring the word. You you might be thinking of Nate Gallagher, his son, um, who we've had uh, a couple different times, a good friend of mine come and preach. Pastor Jim taught at our marriage conference with his wife, Christy, and so we're excited to have him next week. Um, you know, we've had the Son, and now we're going to have the Father, and we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit's going to be here strong as well next week. Sorry if that wasn't appropriate. But, um, uh, but here in chapter 8, Mark chapter 8, the end of this chapter, let me say this as we look at the way Jesus clarified. Uh, this section that we just read, this is very important. We're now at eight chapters in, five months into this book, a couple months to go, a few chapters to go. But this section here, this exact moment that we read about here in Mark 8, signifies a massive shift in the story and life of Jesus. What we're going to see from chapters now, here at the end of 8, all the way through chapter 16 as it's fulfilled, is we're going to see Jesus begin to focus in on what his mission on earth was to do, what he came to do which was to suffer and die for the sins of humanity, to be the Messiah who's crucified for our sins. He didn't just come to teach and preach and heal. He came, as he taught there to his disciples, ultimately, ultimately to be the Savior, to go to the cross And, you know, up to this point, Mark 1 through 8 has really just been about his general ministry, right? In Galilee, healing, preaching, teaching, so many incredible insights into what Jesus was like. I've really enjoyed getting a fresh look at him in this gospel. But again, now that the focus shifts, so Jesus now, listen closely, he's beginning to prepare for his departure, He's beginning to prepare for his departure, and one of the main ways that he prepares for his departure is he begins to prepare who? His disciples. They, they need more preparation than anyone. We're going to see that. Like most of the second half of each gospel is Jesus trying to prepare his disciples for the fact that he's not going to be here forever. In fact, he's got a short amount of time, and so they, they need to get ready for him to leave. And that's, that's really what Jesus spent most of those three years doing. Not just ministry to the multitudes, but preparing his disciples. Equipping them so that they could carry on the mission and make more disciples. And here we are today, right? It's pretty cool. Now, here in Mark 8, as Jesus is beginning to prepare... so many different ways that Jesus prepared his disciples. Like, he, he dealt with a lot of their misconceptions. He ta- he, in, in the Gospel of John, I love John 14 through 16, which is like... the It's all red letters. It's, it's the most teaching in the Gospels on Jesus, yeah, of Jesus preparing his disciples, a lot about the Holy Spirit and all, and all that. Um, but here in this section, Jesus has a unique ministry of preparation that he's focusing on, and we'll call it the ministry of clarification. That's what he's doing here. Um, the disciples were ones who often struggled, not just to see things, but to see things Clearly. There was often some kind of fuzzy picture that Jesus had to make clear for them, and he's going to start doing that. That's what we read here in this passage. He's beginning to clarify what may be a little fuzzy. And So that's my, by the way, my own uh, definition of what it means for Jesus to clarify. What does that mean? Here's a, uh, you know, I looked on Google and all sorts of places, and this is just the best I could come up with, but let's just take it and run with it, all right? To clarify is to take, to take whatever may be fuzzy and make it crystal clear. To take whatever may be fuzzy and make it crystal clear. That's what Jesus is doing with his disciples. Whatever may be a little fuzzy, he he wants it to be clear. He doesn't want them to be unsure about what is true and what they need to know. Have you ever sought clarity from God? That's something you've ever wanted from God? You ever prayed that before? You ever actually expressed that? I've said that before. People are like, how are you doing navigating that situation? You're going, you know, I'm just praying for some clarity. You ever wanted that? You ever been in a fuzzy situation? And you're like, God, if I could just have some crystal clarity right now, everything would be great. Now, if if that's true, if you've gone to God for clarity before, I want to say you're doing the right thing. um, Because God is the source of all clarity. God is the source of all peace and truth. He's the one that calms the storms of our confusion. This is what he does. He's not the God of confusion. He calms the seas of our confusion, and he brings the peace of his clear truth. That's what it means to be a Christian. Yet the challenge with this is, and I'm sure you've been here before, God doesn't always clarify what we want. That's hard, right? Like, God, I'm glad that you made all these things clear, but I need clarity on this specific thing, please. Clarity now, go, right? Like, the challenge with this is God is still God. And there's times where, listen, it's not his will to bring you clarity because it's your, listen, it's his will for you to trust him. And that's tough. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And sometimes it's it's not God's will to give us perfect clarity in every situation of life. But on the flip side... There are some areas of understanding, listen closely, where clarity is essential. You can't get clarity everywhere, but there are some areas that you and I must be clear on. There must be clarity. That's what we, we see here with the disciples. And it's funny that as Jesus is trying to do this with them, the context of it is really beautiful. It's, it's almost poetic. Um, because it, it ties into what we studied last week. Do you remember last week we talked about the way that Jesus enlightened? And that's really kind of a similar theme to the idea of Jesus clarifying. But I guess the difference would be this. To enlighten is to help you see, but to clarify is to help you see clearly, right? And there's even a great picture of this towards the end of what we read. Do you remember this? At the end of Mark 8, there's this This is the last thing we read, all right, in Mark 8. Jesus takes a blind man by the hand. He leads him out of town. He spit on his eyes. No, chilling, Spit on his eyes. And put his hands on him. And he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and he said, I see men like trees walking. So it's kind of like, all right, it's kind of working. But it's a little fuzzy because he thinks people are trees. That's not going to work. we got to keep going, right? Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And what does it say? He was restored. And what did he do? He saw everyone clearly. See, it wasn't just a work of eye-opening enlightenment. The work that Jesus even does here in this last miracle is a work of clarity, enlightening his eyes to see clearly. There are three things in this passage that we read. That Jesus clarifies Uh, these three things let me say this that Jesus clarifies for his disciples in this passage I want to encourage us with the fact that these are also three things that he wants to be crystal clear in our lives as well so my prayer is that we generally walk away here with clarity maybe not perfectly in all the areas that we want but at least in these three key ways He's preparing his disciples, and he's got to make some things clear. He starts with this. The first thing that Jesus clarifies for his otherwise fuzzy and confused disciples is he brings into focus, first and foremost, the foundation of his church. Jesus clarifies the foundation upon which he's going to build his church. The church is the organized covenant community and family of God, God's children together. We see the foundation of his church clarified in a dialogue between Jesus and his disciples when he asked them this question. Jesus went with his disciples out to the area of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he's walking with them on the road, and he asked his disciples saying, here's the first question he asked them, which is a really great question. Who do men say that I am? I think it's important for us as Christians to have, if we're going to be effective in bringing Christ to the world around us, we would be wise to start with an understanding of cultural's perception of Jesus, right? That's what Jesus is getting them to think about. What, what is the cultural view of me? This is really important. Um, sometimes the problem with bringing Jesus to people is the Jesus that we're thinking of, it's not connecting with the Jesus that they're thinking of. But one of the, the greatest tools for evangelism is to find out from people, like, what do you think about Jesus? And, and, and you can almost see sometimes there's truth embedded in whatever weird view they have of Jesus, you know? Like, oh, he was a great teacher. It's like, he sure was, wasn't he? Why do you think he was such a good teacher who spoke with such authority? You know, you could use those views of Jesus as a bridge to present the whole truth of Christ. Are you following me? Rather than just like, here's Jesus, it's like, well, who's Jesus to you? So Jesus is getting them to think about what the cultural view of Jesus is. Again, not just to leave people in that, but to ultimately bring them into the full truth of who he is. They answer, and they, they, had, a, they had their finger on the, the pulse of what culture thought of Jesus. Let me just stop and say this. Uh, this isn't an old thing. Jesus is the most polarizing popular figure from all of history. There's never been more opinions about an individual than Jesus. Did you know this? Like more than any president. Okay, like more than any, any political figure in history, no one has more popular and cultural uh, varied opinions than the person of Jesus. Um, this, this is just true throughout all of history. And in that time, they answered. He said, there's a variety of opinions about you, Jesus. Some people say that you're John the Baptist which is my cousin. So that's weird. I can't be my cousin, you know? Aren't you glad you're not your cousin? That's what Jesus is like. I'm not my cousin, okay? So some say you're John the Baptist. Why? Because John the Baptist, he stood up to the man, right? And you're like him. You're like a spiritual revolutionary, like your cousin. So maybe you're like the resurrection of John the Baptist, who got his you know, head cut off and served on an olive garden platter. It was beautiful, all right? It wasn't beautiful. Why did I say that? Anyway, John the Baptist. No, others say Elijah, the miracle worker, who did powerful wonders and signs confirming his calling. And others say one of the prophets, maybe even the prophet that Moses described. Now, let me say this. All of these cultural views of Jesus contain some truth. These aren't insults. Like, you know, when the Pharisees were asked who he is, they're like, oh, he's of the devil. Okay? These are compliments. They're like, these are positive truths. But the problem with all of these ideas is they're partial truths. Have you ever had someone make a conclusion about your whole identity based upon one little part? They saw, they saw like a little glimpse of you, and they're like, that must be who they are. And, and it's not until you really come into relationship with someone and see the whole person that you understand that they're more than just that one tiny part. And maybe there's this other part that gives context to that part. You know what I'm saying? It can be really easy just to look at one part of someone and be like, that's who they are. I know. I'm like the Lord. I have perfect discernment here, Right? And that's that's what's happening here. They're taking one part of Jesus and they're concluding the whole. And I don't know if there's any greater mistake in life than to settle for one glimpse of Jesus and not the whole. Imagine God comes to manifest who He is in a person. We go, man, God, if I could just see you, He goes, okay, I'll come into existence, I'll move into the neighborhood. Like, you'll see me taking out my trash in the morning, okay? Like, that's what the message version says, that the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. I love that. And and, and Jesus, the Bible says, he's the manifestation of God. He's God in the flesh. He's the image of the invisible God. And imagine to only settle for one piece of who he is. That's so sad. I want to see all that you are, Jesus. I want to know who you are in truth. I'm not just going to settle, and I'm not going to allow culture to alter my view of you. So, so we ask the first question, okay? The first question is, I think, an important question for us to ask ourselves. Who do men say that Jesus is? For evangelistic purposes, this is an important question to ask. But the second question that Jesus asks is the most important. And I don't even just mean out of these two questions. I would wager that this is the most important question that you or I could ever answer. A lot of questions in life, a lot of mysteries, a lot of conclusions. None more important than this next question. Jesus then turns to his disciples and says, but who do you? Who do you say that Jesus is? It's it's great to have an understanding of what culture says about Jesus, but what is your own personal conclusion about Jesus? Who is he? Who is he to you? See, every person is going to give an account for how they answer this question. Who is Jesus to you? I, I see the Lord looking at us today and going, hey, it's great you have all this knowledge, but who is Jesus to you? Who do you say that he is? What's your own personal conviction? What about the state of your own soul and your own salvation? Now, good old Peter, first to raise his hand in the class, and which usually means, we're going to see here, he either gets a bullseye, Or he misses the target altogether. Anybody else like that in life? I'm just curious. I'm kind of like that. I either like I'm I'm not getting around the target, I'm getting a bullseye, or I'm like hitting someone else on accident. Like, and this is Peter. He's the first to answer. And when Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? Peter responds, and let me tell you this: this is a conclusion that Peter has come to progressively. A couple chapters ago, they're saying this: who is this man? I just want to say that when you spend time with Jesus, if you seek him, he will show you who he is. And they're spending time with him. They're watching what he does. I'm telling you, like, you'll never see Jesus from afar. If you just take what people are saying about him and just kind of draw your conclusions based on hearsay, you, you'll only get a part. But if, like Peter, you come close and you walk with him and you say, Jesus, show me who you are, in truth, he will reveal himself to you. He will. He will. He's not hiding. We're the ones with our eyes closed. He wants to clarify the truth of who he is to you. And Peter has come to this point where he says, you are the Christ. You're not just some miracle worker. You're not just some teacher. You're not just some prophet. You're not just some spiritual revolutionary. You're not just another good man in history, giving good advice for how to love our neighbors. You are the anointed one. You are the one. You are the promised one from Genesis 3, all throughout the Old Testament, the one that God promised would come and save his people. The anointed one, the, the Christ. Now, by the way, Christ, if you knew the Bible, you're like, oh, cool. That's, so that's where Jesus gets his last name. Jesus Christ. In the phone book, Christ comma Jesus, right? Is that how it works? Okay, now the, the word, <laughs> Jesus' title was Jesus of Nazareth. That's kind of his most common name. Jesus Christ is a title. Christ, in the Greek, Christos, in the Hebrew, Mashiach, it means anointed one. The anointed one. There are three offices, some say four, but we'll focus on three offices in the Old Testament that were anointed. It's the role of prophet, the role of priest, and the role of king. And every anointed prophet, priest, and king in the Old Testament existed to be shadows of the one who would be the anointed one not an anointed one but Jesus the prophet Jesus the high priest the Jesus listen the king of kings the anointed one you're the one that God has promised. You are the Christ. In Matthew's version, Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Jesus, when we've spent time with you, we've come to see who you are in truth. We've left our assumptions at the door, and you have revealed who you are to us. Now, I love Matthew's version. I don't know what's going on here. I have a feeling, you know, Peter is the he's the narrator behind Mark's gospel here. So I'm not sure if Peter is selectively leaving some things out. I don't know. I'm not assuming that, but. Matthew gives us a little bit more information. This is actually some cool stuff. Uh, In Matthew's version, Jesus answers Peter when he says this, that you're the Christ. Matthew says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. I love this. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Isn't that beautiful? Um, Can I just say about this principle? Um, Human beings don't and cannot flesh and blood their way into truth. You can't figure way, you know, your way out into truth. i got to figure it out. Uh, truth is the result of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 that no one can even say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So like Peter, like today, if you've come to the point to where you go, who's Jesus? He's the Christ, man. He's the Son of the living God. He's my Savior. If you can say that, you don't, don't chest bump yourself in the mirror, okay? That's not because you're smart enough and you figured it out. That's because the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes to see him in truth. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. This reminds us, by the way, that we don't yell people into understanding Jesus. Maybe if I scream louder, and maybe if I'm more angry at you, you'll finally get it. No, we don't yell the Holy Spirit into people, okay? We pray for the work of the Holy Spirit. We sow seeds of the Spirit into people's lives. And, And this is the, you know, there's some hard news here. You can't see it on your own. There's some better news here. There are no eyes too blind that the Holy Spirit cannot open. That's better news. Here's proof. He's opened your eyes. You can clearly see Jesus. That's the work of the Spirit. It's what he does. It's what he's up to in the world. Opening eyes to see Jesus in truth. That's what he's up to. It's the work of the Spirit. So that's what, what Jesus tells Peter. Flesh and blood, it's not, Peter, it's not your, your street smarts that led you to this conclusion, but the Father has opened your eyes to see Jesus. And let me say one more thing about this, just kind of getting into this a little bit more. This is what the Father loves to do. The Father especially uses the Holy Spirit to open eyes to behold the Son. This is what the Father is up to. The Son exists to glorify the Father. The Father exists to point to the Son. Jesus goes, i got to go away so you can get the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to point people to Jesus to glorify the It's beautiful, right? There's nothing like a, a community of people that exists to just point to the other. This is the Trinity. So the Father reveals to Peter who Jesus is. Now, look at Jesus' response. Remember, Jesus is clarifying something here. He's clarifying, what, what was the point? I totally forgot it now, right? The fa- I didn't forget it, I'm kidding, right? But we're, we're pretty far from it. The point that we made here is that in this question that Jesus is asking his disciples, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Jesus is clarifying what is to be the foundation of his church. You with me? That was the point. We see this in Matthew 16. Jesus says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, um, Jesus is a genius communicator. So intelligent. And what, one of the things I love about Jesus is he, perfect for Father's Day, Jesus loves a good pun. He loves it. I would use some here, but I don't want to punish you. Um, I know, they're annoying sometimes, right? All right. Jesus here, he, he says, he's, using, he's kind of having wordplay. Now, there's a, there is some tremendous negative effects of misinterpreting this verse right here, by the way and the way that you by the way accurately interpret a verse is with other verses. We know that, right? Right? Remember, remember Satan tempts Jesus with a verse? Doesn't Jesus doesn't the Bible say this? He's like Jesus is like, "Yeah, but it also says this." <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like that's how you understand what the Bible's saying is where else does it speak of what it's it's saying here. Jesus says, "You are Peter," which means in Greek, you're rock. You're Petros. You you you're solid, you're rock, Peter. I'm making you this rock. You are Simon, pebble, shifting sand, you shall be Cephas. That was the work he was doing in Peter's life. He says, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Today, there's uh, entire denominations and movements, the Catholic Church itself, that's built upon this idea that the church is built on Peter. On Peter. Now, Peter writes in 1 Peter 2 that the cornerstone is Jesus. And all throughout the scriptures, this is reiterated. Uh, Jesus is not saying in this passage that Peter is the foundation of the church. We build all things upon Peter. Paul will go on to say that there's no other foundation that anyone can lay except that which is laid, which is Jesus. What Jesus is saying here is when he says this rock, the rock that he's referring to, listen closely, is the confession of faith that Jesus is Messiah. That confession that Peter makes, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Peter goes, Jesus goes, you're Peter, and on this rock, not this rock, on this rock, I will build my church. Peter says that we come to Jesus as the church, as, a, as to a living stone. He's our living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, you and I as Christians, we are living stones, and we're being built up a spiritual house, a holy Priesthood, what a vision for soulless church. We're each living stones being built up to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture behold, I lay a chief cornerstone, elect and precious. This is not Peter, by the way, this is Jesus, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. The foundation of the church, the foundation of our lives, the thing upon which we build everything, from here on out, is Jesus. It's who Jesus is. Jesus wasn't going to gamble building the church upon a man. He was going to build the church upon the foundational truth of life, that Jesus is here, and he's the Messiah. Paul goes on to say this. i got some verses for you. 1 Corinthians 3. Paul says, we are God's fellow workers. He's talking about ministry. You are God's field. Then he says, you are God's Building. He says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds upon it. Paul's like, this is how ministry is sometimes. Sometimes you're not there to construct the whole thing. Sometimes God, and this might be helpful to someone, sometimes all that God has for you to do is a foundational work. Just because you didn't see the whole thing constructed or the whole thing bear fruit doesn't mean your ministry was in vain. You have a part to play. You and I are just pieces of the puzzle, right? And Paul's like, I had a ministry there in Corinth to lay a foundation. And and now that I've laid the foundation, another is building upon it. I can't, like, people like me who are really stubborn in their faith, I've needed, like, multiple construction crews to get me where I am today. Like, just to come to Jesus and to keep walking with Jesus, I have multiple people laying foundations. I got people coming back. I got the city showing up. Like, you got a permit for that? You know, I got all sorts of issues, all right? And Paul's talking about the... That's very relevant to my life personally in a lot of ways, but I won't get into that. All right. Paul's like, I've laid the foundation. Another builds upon it. But he says, but, but let each take heed how he builds. Be careful in life and in ministry and in the church. As a Christian, you got to be careful. You need to evaluate what you're building on. There's one foundation. For another foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. What an incredible foundation. Incredible, incredible vision for the church. What, a, what an incredible vision for our lives. Um, here's the question that this leads us to ask. I, wanna, I want you to ask yourself this question. What foundation are you building your life upon? What's the foundation of your life? What's your cornerstone? Well, I believe Jesus is the Christ. Are you building upon him? Is that confession of faith, is the foundation of your life Jesus? Now, here's how you can know what you're building on. One of the ways you can know what you're building on is to ask, what am I building for? What am I, what, what's the goal? What's the aim? What am I pr- in pursuit of? Well, that should show you what your foundation is. Most of life is repenting of the faulty foundations that we tend to build upon. The faulty foundations that creep in. Maybe for you right now, You're building your life upon some sort of financial foundation. If you could make this much, have this much, or because you have this much, you have some sense of standing, and it's a faulty foundation. Maybe your foundation is a social foundation. If If you could impress enough people with your success, if you could make it in the eyes of man, you're building upon a faulty foundation. Maybe your foundation is a relational foundation. It's a relationship. And if you could just make this relationship work out, everything's going to be fine. And I just want to say, especially, like, and can I say that we could do this um, as parents with our kids? We can make our kids the foundation of our lives to the point to where they become an idol. And can I just say, like, um, you know, when you're making a relationship or a person your foundation, what you're doing is crushing them under the weight of something that they can't bear. And this is a dangerous place to be. You'll disappoint yourself and you'll hurt them in the process. There's also political foundations we build upon. Love your neighbor, have at it, have fun. Have political fun. But don't build your life off of political pursuits. Don't let your foundation be politics. Politics should flow out of a good Jesus foundation. How we live together matters. Next point. Maybe it's a religious foundation. You're building upon goodness and morality and church. Listen, all these things, they might be the result of a good foundation, but they make for faulty substitutes that cannot bear the weight of your life. On Christ, the poem says, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is shifting sand. It's shifting sand. Jesus is the only foundation. Jesus wants to clarify that to you and me today. The foundation of his church in our lives is him and him alone. It's solus Christus. And, and we've wanted that as a church to be more than a mantra for us. You, know, you could say Jesus at the center so much that you forget that that's actually what we need to be after. You know? But this is really what we want to be after, not just as a church collectively, but as people individually. What's the foundation of your life? What are you building upon? Um, C.S. Lewis talks about the, the, the mess that we make when we put second things first Versus putting first things first and getting everything else thrown in. When you put second things first, you you miss everything. But when you put first things first, when you seek first the kingdom of God, when he's the foundation, all things will be right. I hope that's clear because that's just point one. Point two. Second thing that Jesus wanted to clarify is the destination of his life. The destination of his life. Jesus wanted to clarify the foundation of his church and of his followers. It's got to be who Jesus is and him alone. Him and him alone. That confession. The second thing he clarifies to his disciples, and we're going to see, uh, this is this is funny. I kind of imagine, like, I grew up skateboarding, and so there's this thing that can happen in skateboarding where, like, you, you've been going for a trick, and you land it, and you're so happy you landed that you're not paying attention. You, like, hit a rock or something, and you fall off after, you like, yeah, boom, okay? That's kind of what happens to Peter here, all right? Uh, Uh, He kind of has a a premature celebration of his awesomeness. (laughs) Jesus then begins to teach them about the destination of where his life is headed. You're the Messiah. Flesh and blood didn't even reveal that to me. I'm a man of the Spirit of God. That's why I said that. So Jesus begins to now teach them what that actually means for him to be who he is. And it's going to contradict some of Peter's uh, expectations. He begins to teach them that the Son of Man, and this is a key word we want to look at, must. Jesus must suffer many things. He must for our salvation. And be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. This is the first time that Jesus brings the disciples' attention to his specific mission. First time. He's going to do it a couple more times here in Mark. But this is the first time that he's like, here's what I'm here for, guys. It's going really well. You know who I am. Now that you know who I am, I can tell you what I'm up to. That's usually the order. We know who he is, and then he tells us what he's going to do. He spoke this word to them openly. So he's preaching it to all of his disciples. And then Peter, just a man of the Lord and the Spirit and perfect inspiration, with perfect clarity, clearly. Peter gets a little bit self-confident in his own clarity. And he, imagine this. Imagine taking Jesus aside to have a chat. Jesus, I got to talk to you. Jesus, can we chat? Hey, Jesus, over here. Yeah, let's go. All right. Like, imagine that. That's what Jesus, that's what Peter does. He he brings him aside, and then to make it a step further, Peter rebukes him. Um, can I remind you that humans aren't inerrant? Okay, we aren't infallible. That's God's word, and that's God's truth, and that's God's spirit. Uh, there can be a danger sometimes when, well, because I've seen things clearly, here's the here's the thought: I must see everything clearly. I see that clearly. I must see everything clearly. I must have 2020 spiritual vision. And this is Peter's self confidence. And we can get listen. I, and this is kind of funny because it's hilarious actually with Peter. Peter's life is for our almost uh, enjoyment in some ways. Uh, Maybe because we see ourselves in Peter, right? But there's some real danger to this spiritually when you become overconfident in the authority of your own perspective and you become wise in your own eyes. Like, and the scripture warns against that. Like, let him who thinks he sees it all take heed. Be careful. You're not infallible. You see things wrong, okay? Don't be so quick to say, thus saith the Lord, and rebuke that person. No, we need to maintain a posture of humility. In fact, probably, it's probably like the more truth we speak, the more we need to stay humble before the Lord and say, God, I don't see everything perfectly. It's an important posture to have. Peter shows us that that posture is important by failing for us, okay? And it says when Jesus had turned around, so like, do you see the scene? Beautiful picture. And Peter's recounting this scenario. So Peter's like, and then what happened, right? So Peter took him aside, Jesus is talking to him, his disciples are over here, and he says, then Jesus turned around and he looked at his disciples. And Peter's talking to him, he's like, what are you looking at, Jesus? Everything okay? What's over there, you know? And, and then Jesus looks back at Peter, and there's, there's a serious moment of humanity here for Jesus where he says, he rebukes Peter, he says, get behind me, Satan. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. So one second In one instant, literally just a moment ago, Peter is inspired by the Spirit of God, he's used by God, and in the next breath, he's used by the devil. What a flip. Um, Peter is going to really learn a a lot about how dangerous self-confidence can be Um, when he says, I'll die with you, Lord, right? Um, I will never deny you. And and so Jesus now, in his humanity, there's a sense in which those, those thoughts of doubt, you know, the, Jesus, listen, was God in the flesh, but He was God in the flesh. He was a human, and He wrestled in the garden. He said, "Father, not my will, but Your will be done." And We see His humanity on display here for how Satan, Satan had one goal with Jesus: keep Him from the cross. Man, got to keep Him from the cross. And he tells Peter, "You're not mindful of the things of God." Even though you just were, you're not now, but the things of men. And that was Peter's problem. Peter had this human perspective, this human opinion of what the Messiah should be doing, what he should be up to. I mean, this is the Messiah. We know it's true. Therefore, now, Jesus, you're going to set us free. You're going to liberate your people. You're going to restore political Israel. And we're going to be able to sit on your right and left in your kingdom. This is going to be awesome. Free dinners and everything. It's going to be great. He had this own idea, this own vision that the truth didn't square away with. Um, Now, I want us to go back to what Jesus is clarifying here. Jesus is clarifying, though, to Peter what the destination of his life is, and he says it there in verse 31. He says, here's what the destination of the Messiah's life is. This is really interesting. Jesus says the Messiah must specifically experience two things. Jesus the Messiah must suffer and be killed, and he must rise again on the third day. He must. And that's a word that we can overlook, but it's so important. Uh, Why must Jesus, as the Messiah, why must the Messiah suffer and die? Well, we can uh, first say because Scripture, Jesus says this in Luke 24, the reason is because Scripture must be fulfilled, first and foremost. Jesus, after he resurrects, he's speaking with his disciples, and he says, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. Things weren't as clear then, okay? He says that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. You see, the Messiah comes to fulfill what God promises, what God has promised for centuries. Since the beginning of time, God promised that a Messiah will come. So the scripture prophesied it. Um, And there's many uh, examples of this. Um, the, The clearest is going to be Isaiah chapter 53, The first time that the Messiah is prophesied is in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is the first time we see this promise of a man who will come to repair what man has broken. And then in Isaiah 53, you get a detailed description of the suffering servant who who will be chastised for our peace, who, who who by his stripes will be healed, he's pierced for our transgressions. The Messiah was not going to come the way any other earthly king came, conquering, taking lives. This Messiah came to lay down his life to save his enemies. It's this beautiful picture of what the Messiah must do. This is um, hard for Peter to understand, but it's, it's a gospel truth. The reason why Jesus said, I must suffer, listen, is because he, he goes on to say this, you and I must be born again. And the problem with our state, apart from Jesus and the cross, is we're, we're stuck in our sins. Jesus must suffer because he, in order to save us, must bear our sin on the cross. He must make the payment for our sin. Hebrews says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. For the sake of our salvation, Jesus had to suffer. He had to die. This is why God sent Jesus. Now, D.A. Carson explains this in a really beautiful way. He says, and I know we can all read that perfectly, right? Sorry. Um, I sent it to Anthony the last second. I was like, just cram it in there. All right? Listen closely. Even if you can't see it, clearly. Okay. Okay. If God had perceived, D.A. Carson says, that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, He would have sent us a politician. If He perceived that our greatest need was health, He would have sent us a doctor. Notice what He says. But God perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from Him, our profound rebellion, our, and, and our death. And so what did He do? He sent us a Savior. He knew, he knew what you and I needed. And so He sent the Messiah who would suffer. Now, he, it doesn't just say that He must die. But it says that he also must, we know this, right? This is like basic gospel 101. For the Messiah to be the Messiah, for Jesus to make sufficient payment for our sins. He must do more than die. He also must rise. He must. And Paul, we know Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, this is like, or 15, this is like the Easter scripture. I think I've preached from it four times since we've had Easter. He says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is empty is also empty, and he says, and yes, we are found false witnesses of God, because we've testified that God raised up Christ, whom he didn't raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. So in that culture, they're like, there's no such thing as resurrection. That's the idea that was bleeding into the church and messing with the gospel truth. And, and Paul goes, if, well, if there's no resurrection, then Jesus isn't alive, and if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the first thing he says is, the gospel then is not true. Jesus must rise for the good news to be true news, Right? It's so good because it's true, right? And that's confirmed by his resurrection, that he wasn't just any old man. This is God in the flesh, more powerful than death. He goes on to say, and also, if the dead do not rise, Christ is not risen. And he says this, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. Notice this, and you're still in your sins. Jesus must rise because if he doesn't rise, then the cross doesn't save. And it's been well said that the cross is payment given, payment given. The resurrection is payment accepted. The resurrection says this payment for sin is sufficient. It validates the power of the cross. And then lastly, he says, also, if Christ is not alive, if he didn't rise, then those who fall asleep in Christ have perished. The hope of resurrection hinges on Jesus' resurrection. But because he lives, you and I, we live. So he must die and he must rise. And our last point on this Father's Day. As he clarifies, lastly, we'll close with this last one, the expectation of his followers. Jesus, is he's got to prepare his disciples, so he's got to make things clear. Here's what needs to be clear to you. It needs to be clear what the foundation of this whole thing is. I'm about to leave, and this whole church thing is going to be birthed by the power of the Holy Spirit, and you're going to be doing some building. It must be clear that the only foundation to build upon is Jesus and Jesus alone. It also must be clear What Jesus came to do, the good news of the gospel. It must be clear to know what Christ came to accomplish as the Savior of all men. Christ came into this world to save sinners. And lastly, he's going to make it clear to them, listen, you need to know what's expected of you if you're going to be my disciple. That needs to be clear. It's almost like, here's what needs to be clear. Who I am, what I've done, and now what I'm calling you to do. Those are the three things that have to be clear in the life of every Christian. And Jesus makes it crystal clear. And his expectations um, fly in the face of American Christianity. His expectations contradict what some authors have called an American, uh, or Christian spin on the American dream. He says this. When he called the people to himself, with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself himself and take up his cross and follow me. Here's what he's calling us to. For whoever desires to save his life is going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will actually find it. For what will it profit a man if you gain the whole world? If you live your life apart from Jesus, trying to find your life and build your own life. What does it profit you to gain all of that? To gain that which cannot bring you eternal life. To gain that which will pass away. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? And not even just in an eternal sense, like in the present sense. What does it profit you to gain the whole world and and lose your soul? Right here, right now. To be spiritually dead. To be spiritually unhealthy. What profit is it in that? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? He's having us think about that. What, What kind of... Decisions am I making in my life? How am I building my life? He says, "Forever is whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation. Of him, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." So, first of all, I love that the invitational spirit Jesus has here. That might sound like a contradiction. I love how inviting Jesus is right here, just so inviting. I mean, He is. He, He said. Whoever, and I love that, whoever, that's the first quantifier. Like, uh, there's not a certain kind of person that gets to be a disciple. Well, there is. It's a whoever, right? For God so loved the world, that he says, only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him. So this is where it starts. It's got to start with the desire of whoever you are, wherever you're at. Right now, right, uh, right in this moment, wherever you're at, you can begin to follow Jesus. He invites you. He doesn't say, hey, take two weeks and clean things up and then come back to me and we'll talk. He said, I don't, I don't care where you're at. I, listen, all I'm looking for is a willing heart. So there's an, there's an invitational heart here. He says, whoever wants to follow me, whoever wants to know me and walk with me and experience new life in me, he says, let him come after me. But know that there will be a cost. New life in Jesus is found on the other side of Resurrection life in the Christian faith is on the other side of death and self-denial. He's prepping Peter, isn't he? Who will literally be crucified. And Peter has this vision of like uh, survival, I think. He has this vision of, of empire and what Jesus can do for them materially and politically. And Jesus goes, no, 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 no. You gotta understand what this thing's about. First of all, this thing's about me suffering and dying. Death that leads to glory and resurrection life. And he says, and and this is the way of the kingdom. And this is, if you're going to be my follower, this is the way that it's going to be for you. This is the only way to be a disciple. It's the only way to be a Christian. Central to the heart of what it means to be a Christian, which flies in the face of culture, is listen, deny yourself, not accept yourself. Isn't that popular? Be true to yourself. Like, I, I can't give you any better advice as a Christian than this, ready? Don't be true to yourself. There's a human nature that Jesus is speaking to here that listen, if the work of the Holy Spirit is going to bear fruit in our lives, if resurrection life is going to be real, we, we must die to self. We must die, a, this, this, by the way, It's not just that he was killed. Notice that Jesus suffered and died. It's the suffering of the flesh. How many of us know that, right? It's not just a one-time, oh, I've died for Christ. I'm good now. No, that that flesh loves to live and come back again Terminator style, okay? But this is the invitation that Jesus makes clear on discipleship, that resurrection life is found on the other side of death. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, The opening line of chapter 1 says, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Come and die, listen, so that you may live. So that life can truly be found. And by the way, when when Jesus says come and die, he's not saying once. He's saying, come, Paul says this, I die daily. On the daily I die. That's what Paul says. I love Paul. It's a daily thing, right? Right? What's the illustration of, like, the cockroach in your house? You don't just kill it once. All right, said. You make sure that thing is dead. You come back over and over again, bringing reinforcement. All right? Six flip-flops usually involved. Six of them, right? It's a regular reckoning ourselves to be dead indeed to sin and alive to Christ. Here's what Paul says. He says, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The context of this is the fruit of the Spirit. So Jesus says to us, hey, I have life for you, but if you're going to live, you've got to die. And maybe it's a good time right now to look at your own life and ask yourself, "What's, what's living? What am I allowing to live right now that needs to die? Where in my life do I need to, listen, get myself out of the way? The self is just so strong, isn't it? The self is always rising up saying, me first, what I want, what I need. Jesus says, true life is found not in trying to find your life and preserve your life, but by giving your life in reckless abandonment to the Father. There is no better life than death in Christ. That's what he calls us to. Amen?